Before we get to chapter 11, verse 1, let's back up just a couple verses, get a little bit of a context uh, for this new judge we're going to be looking at this morning. If you go back to really verses 10, 11, down through 15 and 16, you see an interesting dynamic happening within the nation of Israel. We are, we've been almost 300, maybe a little bit beyond 300 years of Israel's history in this cycle. The cycle of disobedience, rebellion against God, judgment. And the byproduct of judgment is this wailing from the people. And God hears their wailing and he raises up a deliverer. And through the ministry of that deliverer, there's this repentance. And then we find that there's peace. And then the judge dies and the cycle repeats, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. For generations, this has been happening and it happens again. In the previous chapter, chapter 10, we find the same pattern. And yet we, 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 we note that there's a bit of a, of a change in God's perspective where God's like, you know what? I'm kind of done. You know, I'm just going to really let you lie in the bed that you've made. I hear your wailing. I hear your misery. I hear all this, but you know what? Why don't you go to your gods for deliverance because you haven't been following me? And there's like this, this kind of an attitude change within God of like, you know what? Enough's enough. And then as a byproduct of that, verse 15 of chapter 10, we read that the children of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned. There's this acknowledgement. But then we find this measure of humility due to us. They cry out to the Lord, whatever seems best to you, only deliver us this day, we pray. So they put away the foreign gods from among them. They served the Lord. There was no expectation. There was a genuine contrition manifesting in repentance, life change. They got away. They, they, they dispelled their gods. They followed and served the Lord, regardless of what God would do next. Lord, we know we've sinned. And then we we're told that the Lord's soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. Literally, God's soul was grieved. What that means, I'm not quite sure. It's an interesting bit of anthropomorphic language. Again, describing something, a groaning within God, this perspective within God, this, this moving within God. He could no longer endure the misery, the groaning of Israel. Verse 17, and the people of Ammon, and the people of Ammon, they, they lived south of Israel, um, out kind of in, they were a desert, semi-nomadic people. They were the descendants of Lot. They had some connection. The people of Ammon, they gathered together, they encamped in Gilead. And the children of Israel assembled together and encamped in Mitzpah. So you have the, the, the Ammonites and you have the Israelites and they've gathered together. There's going to be a battle. Again, God has not promised to deliver. God has not spoken to the people. God has remained rather silent. But the people, the leaders of Gilead said to one another, who is the man who will begin the fight against the people of Ammon? He shall be head over the inhabitants of Gilead. So they're going into battle and they acknowledge we have no deliverer. We have no leader. Has God raised up a man? Now, verse 1 of chapter 11. There's this void of leadership, a vacuum. Now, Jephthah, the Gileadite, 
was a mighty man of valor. His name means he will set free, fitting to be a deliverer, a mighty man of valor, but he was the son of a harlot. And Gilead begot Jephthah. Gilead's wife bore sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, you shall have no inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. We're kind of introduced to this interesting character, a little bit of his backstory. He's born of a harlot. He's a bastard. He is adopted into the home, but when his other brothers, the more legitimate kin, reach a certain age, they dispel their brother. You're the son of the whore. And so they get rid of him. They say, you can't live here. You'll have no part of the inheritance. Jephthah, right from an early day, gets a bad deal. And let's be honest, like, does Jephthah have, is this his problem? Is this his fault? Has he done anything to warrant, to merit the cards that he's been dealt? He didn't get to choose his daddy. He didn't get to choose his mama. He didn't get to choose the family he was born into. He didn't get to choose the circumstances. He got none of that. I mean, imagine just being like growing up, being despised by your brother. It's not your fault. You didn't choose this. And yet this was just the cards you were dealt. How frustrating, how difficult. What, what a childhood Jephthah must have had. And then finally he gets rejected by his brethren. He gets run out of the house. He gets sent away. You're the son of the other woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and he dwelt in the land of Tob. And worthless men banded together with Jephthah and went raiding with him. That's an interesting, interesting way that this gets set up. So Jephthah gets kicked out. We're already told he's a mighty man of valor. There's something about him that was charismatic, something that was dynamic. He seems to be a natural leader. Maybe this, his own vibrato, his strength, his tenacity and bravery, maybe this was a threat to his other brothers. Thinking, well, he's the natural leader, but he can't be because of, of, of the, you know, the situation regarding his birth. So they run him out because they know he'll just kind of take the place, take the mantle. He'll dominate. Sure enough, he goes to Tob, which is Syria. He's run out of the land and he escapes. And it doesn't take long for him, again, just his magnetism for the outcasts to attract a merry band of other outcasts. Sound familiar? You know? I imagine that he ran around in the woods in tights looking for fights. So he gets this group. He's a man of valor. He's a strong man. He's a determined man. He's a man with a plan, a man with a vision. Again, his name means he will set free. People are attracted to him and begin to follow him. Now there's a little bit of debate into like what, type of men are attracted to Jephthah. Also a little bit of controversy in like what they did as a posse. Uh, the way that the English kind of phrases this makes it seem like that they were pirates. You know, that they were, you know, strong men, strong armed, and they would just take what they want. There is an argument to be made within the Hebrew that what they were doing was kind of very similar to David, another man described as a man of valor, and the group of misfits that came around him. That in some regard, that they were, and again, you got to place yourself into an ancient culture, that they were kind of like security for hire. 
that if a town was feeling threatened, you know, if a crop was uh, being marauded, if there was, you know, a danger, that you could reach out to Jephthah and his crew, and they would come, kind of set up shop, and protect you. And there seems, I, I kind of gravitate more towards that interpretation of what's happening here. And so you have this outcast that's an outlaw with a bunch of other outlaws. And they're out and they're defending people. And, and in the course of that, they're learning uh, skills in military endeavor. They're, they're, they're learning uh, the ability of hand-to-hand combat. You know, he's kind of, interestingly, being prepared for a role, isn't he? Now, now keep in mind, he's living this life because he's been dealt a bad deck, but God dealt him the bad deck because God had a bigger plan for his life. So again, God is in complete control of all of this. And God is orchestrating things that maybe on uh, the outside, you would look at Jephthah and say, man, that's a, that, that's a bad deal. Man, that was a bad turn. Man, that, that, my heart goes out to you. But in retrospect, in the big scheme of things, these, these negative things God had orchestrated in order to prepare Jephthah for what his ultimate calling would be. Being born the son of a bastard, being kicked out of the house, having to fend for himself, seeing the plight of others, learning warfare. Again, God is in control. So it came to pass after a time that the people of Ammon made war against Israel. That was the context established at the end of chapter 10. And so it was, verse 5, that when the people of Ammon made war against Israel, that the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, come and be our commander, that we may fight against the people of Ammon. Now, Jephthah had to have developed quite a reputation. He is living and operating 80 miles outside of the land of Israel. He's got these men, this crew running with him, an entourage. He's been rejected, been kicked out. He's had to flee. But now Israel's in a tight spot. And what do they need? They need a man of valor. They need a man that can lead them into battle. The Ammonites are there and they don't have a leader that can deliver them. And so they start, you know what? We need to reach out to Jephthah. And not only do they reach out to him, they send the elders of the town to petition, to beg him. I mean, there's a, a whole crew that goes up to meet with Jephthah. And they're like, we need your help. We need you to come down. I, 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 we know we rejected you, but now we kind of need you. And so will you please come back? So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and expel me from my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, that is why we have turned again to you now that you may go with us and fight against the people of Ammon and be our head over the inhabitants of Gilead. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you take me back home to fight against the people of Ammon and the Lord delivers them to me, shall I be your head? Like what happens after the victory? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord will be a witness between us if we do not do according to your words. And Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commander over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord in Mitzvah. Now, what makes Jephthah an interesting character is that what's been absent of the dynamic thus far? (laughs) 
it's really unique from the rest of, of the stories. Like, go, go back and just compare it to, to Gideon, the story of Gideon. You have the Midianites coming in. The people are crying out for a deliverer. So who raises up the deliverer? God does. God goes and says, yo, Gideon, we got to have this thing. You're my man. I'm going to fill you with my spirit. I'm calling you to do this thing, this work, to be a deliverer. Do you see God raising up Jephthah at all here? Is, is, is like God have a part in this? Now we understand the providential role of God behind the scenes, but it makes a difference in the story that God's not the one going to Jephthah when he's in Tob and saying, hey, I want to deliver my people. I'm going to raise you up. I need you to go back. Take a step of faith. We don't find that at all. In fact, this is a unique situation where it's the children of Israel going and recruiting a deliverer. And who are they recruiting as the deliverer? The man they have already rejected. The man that they have already expelled, they've already despised, and they say, we need you now. And Jephthah would have had every right to say, pound sand, bro. This is your fault. I'm not here. And what's to say that if I come back and I do this thing and God delivers, that after the deliverance, you don't send me right back on my merry way. You see, there's something within Jephthah, and we're going to see this illustrated moving forward. There's some deep spiritual acumen within this man. Again, he's born of a harlot. He's despised and rejected of his brothers. He's kicked out of the land. He makes do. The people of Israel come back and say, we need you. But what does he want? I want to make sure that I can stay back in the land. There's this deep longing within Jephthah. I've been kicked out. I really want back in. I want to live here. I want to grow here. And we'll see in just a minute that Jephthah, despite his upbringing, despite the bad a hand he was dealt, Jephthah has this insane understanding of biblical history. In fact, we'll just read, read on. I'll illustrate this. So Jephthah gets recruited. He comes back. And what does he do? Verse 12, Jephthah sends messengers to the king of the people of Ammon saying, what do you have against me that you have come to fight against me in my land? And the king of the people of Ammon answered, answered the messengers of Jephthah because Israel took away my land when they came up out of Egypt from the Arnon as far as the Jabbok into the Jordan now, therefore, restore those lands peaceably. So Jephthah gets recruited. He's a man of valor. He's a fighter. He's a warrior. He gets recruited to be the leader. He's given the authority, the right to do this. First thing he does is what? Let's see if we can negotiate a peace. The fighter has an intuition like maybe we can resolve our conflict without bloodshed. We have not seen that at all in the book of Judges. There's been a snap reaction to the sword. And yet Jephthah's like, you know, let's see if we can avoid killing each other. And so he begins a peace negotiation. Now he's going to begin a peace negotiation about who owns the legal right to the land. That peace negotiation will fail. Does that sound familiar? A peace negotiation about land in the Middle East that doesn't work out? It doesn't work out in the book of Judges, yet alone today. 
They've been fighting over this and they've been disputing it since. Now, I'm going to read kind of this whole negotiation. We're going to go quickly through it. And I'm not going to get into all the, the details. You can study it more on your own. But again, note just the, the incredible understanding of Jewish history that Jephthah has. And place that into the context of his upbringing. The man knows God's word and he knows the story. So the king of Ammon's like, well, we can have peace, but you need to restore the land that you've taken when you came back from Egypt. By the way, they're now disputing land that has kind of been settled for about 400 years, which is a little silly at this point. So Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of of the people of Ammon. And he said to him, thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab, nor the land of the people of Ammon. For when Israel came up from Egypt, they walked through the wilderness as far as the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not heed. And in like manner, they sent to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained in Kadesh. And they went along through the wilderness and bypassed the land of Edom and the land of Moab, came to the east side of the land of Moab and encamped on the other side of the Aron. But they did not enter the border of Moab, for the Aron was the border of Moab. Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, king of Hezbon. And Israel said to him, please let us pass through your land into our place. But Sion did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sion gathered all of the people together and camped at Jahaz and fought against Israel. This is unprovoked. Israel has not been the aggressor at any point. They're just trying to get back to their land. They've got to go through other territories. They're not being allowed to. Verse 21. And the Lord God of Israel delivered Sion and his people into the hand of Israel. And they defeated them. Thus Israel gained possession of all of the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country. They took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from Aaron to the Jabbok, from the wilderness of Jordan to the Jordan. And now the Lord God of Israel has dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. Should you then possess it? Will you not possess whatever Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess. So whatever the Lord, our God, takes possession of before us, we will possess. Kind of like, why don't you take this up with your God? Our God's kind of given us a whole bunch of land. Your God doesn't seem to be giving you anything. And now, are you better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever strive against Israel? Did he ever fight against them? While Israel dwelt in Hezbon and its villages, and Aror and its villages, and in all the cities along the banks of Aaron for 300 years, why did you not recover them within that time? Like, what's the dispute here? This, is, this happened several hundred years ago. <laughs> we haven't had a thing, and now it's a thing. Therefore, and this summarizes the conclusion of his argument, therefore I have not sinned against you, but you have wronged me, by fighting against me. May the Lord, the judge, render judgment this day 
between the children of Israel and the people of Ammon. However, the king of the people of Ammon did not heed the words which Jephthah sent him. Now, this is where God gets brought into it. Jephthah, a man of valor, is brought in to be a deliverer, to lead the armies of Israel. He sends, he's like, let's try peace first. And there's an exchange happening about the history of things. You've taken our land. No, we haven't taken your land. You can't put that on us. And Jephthah, again, goes through this incredible recounting of the history, of the story. In fact, we were never the, the aggressor. We were trying to get to the land that God gave us. We get all this resistance. The Amorites ended up fighting us. They lost. We took their land. It's been that way. So if you have a problem with the land dispute, come get it, buddy. That's what Jephthah's basically saying. In fact, we'll let Jehovah be the judge whose land it should be. If we lose, it's supposed to be yours. If we win, it's supposed to be ours. And so the king of Ammon's like, let's do this. That's my summary. Now we see the interesting transition here. Then the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. And he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed through Mitzvah of Gilead. And from Mitzvah of Gilead, he advanced towards the people of Ammon. The spirit of the Lord clothed Jephthah. And again, this is the confirmation of his calling, the confirmation of God's coronation, the confirmation that God is with him in the fight and that he is behind him because the spirit of the Lord came upon him to empower him. Third time we've seen this happen. The first was with Othniel, an early judge. The second we saw with Gideon, the third time now we see the Holy Spirit, this New Testament experience promised to all believers. The Holy Spirit is with us, he's in us, but then he can come upon us to empower us, to give us the strength to do the things that we can't do. I overheard a conversation yesterday with Jessica, my wife, and Mabel, my four-year-old. And Mabel was being a bit prickly to say the least. And Jessica looked at her and she says, I can't do this. Abel's like, oh. And then Jessica added, theologically sound, apart from the power of the Holy Spirit of God on high. But isn't that true? That there's so many things, you know, we talk about the Holy Spirit in this etherical way, this like mystical sense, but like, like you can't live the Christian life on your own, but neither have you been asked to. To live the godly experience, to be Christ-like, to, to walk as Christ would walk, to follow him requires something that you don't intrinsically have in and of yourself. If you ever reach the moment in your Christian experience, you're like, I can't do this. I can't love my husband. I can't take care of these kids. I can't submit to this boss. I can't do this, whatever that is. I would say amen and amen, brother or sister. You can't. And in fact, that admission places you in a really good spot. The end of yourself. 
so that you can cry out to God for his strength and enabling. And that's where the Holy Spirit comes in. The Holy Spirit comes into our weakness to provide us the strength that we don't have. You know, we get into a lot of trouble in our Christian experience when we feel as though we can do it apart from the empowering of God. And anytime we take that step and we go that direction, God will let us hit a wall. You need the Holy Spirit. The empowering of the Holy Spirit. But you know, I do think that there is this this component within the Old Testament examples of the empowering of the Holy Spirit that give us, I think, a, a unique insight that's applicable to our New Testament reality. Something that's promised to all of us, but it's a unique experience in the Old Testament. Every time the Holy Spirit is, is, is poured out upon someone, it's for what? It's empowering for the battle, isn't it? Whether it's Othniel or it's Gideon or here we find uh, it with Jephthah or we'll see it with Samson. The Holy Spirit empowers someone who is going into the fight, into the battle, into the conflict. You know, maybe, just maybe, that you're not experiencing the empowering of the Holy Spirit because you are in no battle at all. That you're apathetic and that you're complacent and you're like, I don't feel like I have any power. Well, why would God give you power? You're not doing anything. You're not taking any steps of faith. You're not progressing. You're not moving forward. Again, the Holy Spirit is given to empower us for the fight. If we're not in the fight, well, why give you power? You see, the Spirit is given to enable success in the battle. So why should the Spirit be given if we're complacent or inactive? So the Spirit comes upon Jephthah. So he's advancing towards the people of Ammon. Now, our story gets really weird. <laughs> if, that's not any, if that's not new to the book of Judges. But this in particular, our story gets very weird. And, and to kind of address this, what we're going to do here is I'm going to read the whole thing. Okay, I'm going to read kind of the rest of the chapter. And then we're going to work our way backwards to try to understand <laughs> what's taking place. So verse 30. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands, then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the people of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's and I will offer it as a burnt offering. (laughs) So Jephthah advanced towards the people of Ammon to fight against them and the Lord delivered them into his hand. That's the battle. We're not giving any more information than that. He goes out, he defeated them with Aror as far as Meneth, the 20 cities, Abel Kirmim with a great, very great slaughter. This, the people of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. That's the fight. It's kind of the afterthought. Of course, he was going to win. God has poured his spirit upon him. Now, when Jephthah came to the house, to his house at Mitzvah, there was his daughter coming out to meet him with timbrels and dancing. And she was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And it came to pass that when he saw her, remember the vow, 
that he tore his clothes and says, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You are among those who trouble me, for I have given my word to the Lord and I cannot go back on it. So she said to him, My father, if you have given your word to the Lord, do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, because the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the people of Ammon. Then she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Let me alone for two months that I may go and wander on the mountains and be well my virginity, my friends and I. And so he said, go. And he sent her away for two months and she went with her friends and bewailed her virginity on the mountains. And it was so at the end of two months that she returned to her father and he carried out his vow with her, which he had vowed, she knew no man. And it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went four days each year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. Well, that's fun. Now, admittedly, our reading presents a scenario where before going out into battle, Jephthah's like, Lord, if you do this, then I'll do this. And let me tell you what I'll do. When I come back from victory, the first thing to come out of my tent, I will offer as a burnt offering. So he goes and he's given the victory and he comes back. And what's the first thing that comes out? His little daughter with timbrels and dancing and singing. And Jephthah's countenance falls. Ruh row. And he says, you've brought me low. And she's like, whatever you vowed, we can do. I'll support you. But you don't, you don't know that I'm going to offer you as a burnt offering. And she's like, well, that stinks. That was a wrinkle. Can you give me two months to go out with my friends before this thing happens? And Jephthah says, yes, go. So she comes back, and he offers her as a burnt offering. I mean, admittedly, if you're just reading this, that, that does seem to be the way that the story presents itself. But I, I would contend that that is not the story at all. I'll contend for a few reasons. First and foremost, human sacrifice was something strictly forbidden in Israel. Two different passages within the law, Leviticus 18, Deuteronomy 12, are, are very, very clear that human sacrifice was an abomination to God. Now, I say that, that I, I can't create a scenario where Jephthah goes such against God's will and such an abominable act that makes him just as similar as the, the, the nation surrounding. Because if you get to the Hall of Fame of the Old Testament, the men that get selected out from the Old Testament stories placed into the book of Hebrews chapter 11 as men of faith, as great men of faith, you find Jephthah. I have a hard time contending that Jephthah would have offered his daughter as a human sacrifice, vow or not, and then have been included in the hall of faith because of just the scenario. I just, I just have a hard time making that leap. Secondly, the entire chapter changes if you change one word. Let's go back. Verse 30, and Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, 
If you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands, then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the people of Ammon, shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. That word and that we find here in the Hebrew can just as easily, and it's in fact more predominantly translated, or. Now the whole story changes. One word, right? So if Jephthah says to the Lord, first thing that comes out of my house to greet me shall surely be the Lord's, or I'll offer it as a burnt offering. You see, Jephthah's describing a consecration. So the first thing, I'll either dedicate it to the Lord or I'll offer it as a a burnt offering because maybe it's his pet that comes out or or a cow wanders around or what what not. Now, if if you approach it in that scenario, then the rest of the chapter actually makes more sense because, okay, play it out. Whatever comes out, I'm giving it, I'm consecrating it, I'm dedicating it to the Lord. What comes out? His daughter. And not just his daughter, but the passage is clear what? His only daughter. His only child. He has neither son nor other children, other daughters. This is his only offspring. And what has he promised? First thing that comes out, I'm dedicating it to the Lord. I'm setting it aside from, for God. And so he comes and, and, and she comes out. And then what does she want to do? They, they shared, this is what's happening. I'm going to consecrate you to the Lord. I'm dedicating you to the service of God. You're no longer going to be mine. You're going to be the Lord's. This was the deal that I made. And she says what? Okay, may it be according to your will. I'm, I'm, I'm all right, but, but give me two months to go and what? Specifically, the language, to be well my virginity. What is she saying? I'm never going to marry. I'm never going to have kids. I'm never going to raise a family. At least give me the opportunity to go out and to grieve that. Dad, hey, whatever you said, whatever vow you made, we should stand behind it. And I'm willing to submit to that. You're my father. And yeah, this is a bummer. I dreamed about being a mom. I've dreamed about raising little ones. I dreamed about having a husband and a family. All these things I won't have, and that's okay. You've dedicated me to the Lord. And she goes out. And then the reaction, she comes and what? He carried out his vow, which he had vowed. And what? She knew no man. Of course, if she's been offered as a burnt offering, seems kind of like a ridiculous observation to make. She knew no man. She also breathed no more. Right? But if, if the dynamic here is consecration, dedication to the Lord, and Jephthah fulfills his vow, and what results? Not death, but she doesn't know a man. And then what takes place? The daughters of Israel, four days out of each year, they go out and they lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. You can actually take that word lament and cons- you can translate it to consult, to converse. Like so, so what happens? Well, I, I am absolutely of the belief Jephthah does not offer his daughter as a burnt offering. It would have been an abomination in God's eyes, which would have necessitated judgment, and I don't see any scenario in which, in which he's in the hall of faith. Now, did Jephthah act rashly in making a vow? I would, I would contend that. 
Did God ask him to make a vow? Did God ask him to make promises? No, God said, I'll give you my spirit. Go have the victory. I don't need to negotiate with you, Jephthah. That's not, that's not how my terms work. Salvation, my salvation, my deliverance is not a tit for tat. It's not a prid quo pro. We're not negotiating. You know, we get into trouble in our own lives when we adopt what we might call an if and then scenario or, or transaction approach to God. God, if you do this, then I'll do that. And God's like, I'm not asking you to do any of it. In fact, I kind of don't like it. How about I do this and you enjoy it? How about that deal? I'm not making my promises, my blessings predicated upon your performance. It's my grace. It's my goodness. See, Jephthah did enter into a sin. God never asked him for this. Now, on the flip side, after making such a a, a vow, I will admit that, that there is something commendable about Jephthah that he holds to his vow. His obedience to the vow indeed cost him. His daughter was no longer his own. He would not have grandkids. His lineage would come to an end. It did cost him. And he recognizes that. Does he renege on his promise? No, he follows through. I hope you realize you, the only vow that we do make is we give our life to Jesus. If you are a follower of Jesus, Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Literally, pick up the thing that kills you and follow me. You're dead, you're following me. That, that is the predicate. It's not an if and then, it's you die, follow me, let me live and work through you. I, I don't want a little bit of you, I want all of you. I don't need a part, I want the whole. And we do come to the Lord, and we do make a vow to the Lord. We give him our life. How often do we take it back? Man, I think we, we, have, we have one of the downsides of there not being persecution within the modern church is that we don't really ever find ourselves in a position where our vow, following through with our vow, really costs. I think that might change, and that might not be a bad thing. Your vow has meaning. You make a vow to your spouse. It's a vow. To death do us part in sickness and in health. In better times and in worse times. They're going to be worse times. But I'm making a vow. How many people bail on their vows? And we do a wedding where you're not making the vow necessarily to the other person. You know who you're making your vow? When I do it anyway. You're making a vow to God. See, God is at the center of your vow. So that when you feel like I'm going to break it with that other person, you got to take a step back and say, well, I made it to God. And God does not like when we break our vows. The Bible says, let your yes be yes, your no be no. In fact, the Bible will exhort you, don't make vows rashly. I'd rather you not make a vow at all. At least we can concede Jephthah should have never made the vow, but he's willing to follow through. And man, this woman, this daughter, I can't wait to meet her. Middle Eastern culture, there's a, there's a patriarchy seen as an ordination from God, and there was a, a right of submission. She didn't make this decision. She didn't make this vow. 
but she's willing to submit herself and trust the Lord. In fact, I'm, I'm convinced that this woman is consecrated to the, the service of God at the tabernacle. In fact, there, there's a few places that you can go and you can see examples of this. I'll just give you one. In 1 Samuel 2, verse 22, because this is not the first person to be consecrated to serve at the tabernacle. Samuel will find the same experience where God intervenes, gives his mama a baby, and she dedicates it back to the Lord. If you'll do this for me, I will dedicate my child. And, and Samuel served in the, in the tabernacle under Eli. At this point in history, that is starting. Eli is probably the high priest in Shiloh while this is going on. And if you consecrated your daughter, what would she have done? She would have gone to the tabernacle and she would have served. We, we read of the women who served at the tabernacle for Samuel. And who would have been included in the women that served? An early version of what we might think of nuns, Jephthah's daughter. And what do you think happened when this little baby is consecrated and dedicated? When Samuel is given, you think Eli's taking care of him? No. Again, I, I can't say this with, with like certainty. I'm speculating. But again, who's authoring this? Samuel. I think Samuel knew this woman very well. In fact, could it be that this woman, the reason we have this story is that she took care of little baby Samuel? She trusted the Lord. She let go of her family. She let go of her dreams. She said, Lord, you use me. I dedicate myself in your service. And she's like, okay, you are going to be a mama to the first prophet of Israel. I can't say that with certainty, but you can't say I'm wrong either. That's how that works. Vows. God does not ask for vows. He asks for one, all of you. And if you give your life to Jesus, and we sing that song, I don't know, I don't know if, if you listen often to the words you're singing, but you know the old hymn, I surrender all, I surrender all. Do you? Have you? Are you? Don't sing it, unless, right? But Jesus gave all. That's the thing. God will never ask us to do something he's not willing to do himself. Hey, I want all of you. And what will I do first? I will give all of me. Jephthah will finish his story next week and transition into one of the final judges a man by the name of Samson, and an interesting story for sure. Father, Lord, we thank you for your word.